Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. And our guest on today's episode is Jeremy King, the restaurateur behind so many of London's finest and most adored restaurants. Along with his longtime collaborator, Chris Corbin, Jeremy opened the Ivy and Jay Shiki and Le Caprice back in the 90s, all of which, I think it's fair to say, became London's first true power restaurants. But now you'll probably know them as the men behind your favourite places to eat out, including the Woolsey, the Delaunay, Colbert, Fisher's, Soutine and Brasserie Zadel. In this episode, we spoke about how Jeremy decided to bet his whole career on the roll of a dice, why he would pretend to be Long John Silver when working in finance, why you should always go with your gut, how the hospitality industry might just survive this pandemic, why I'm doing my best is a terrible thing to say, and why you should never, ever open a restaurant on a full moon. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. You are our first guest back in the real world, so to speak, because for the last few months we've been doing this over Zoom. And in fact, you're probably the perfect guest to be doing face-to-face again because your whole life and your whole career has been about people meeting up in the real world and having a good time. I wonder how you found the last few months being someone who every day was out and about in restaurants that obviously have been completely inactive. I, uh, to a degree, not completely inactive. It's actually been a very concentrated period. It's almost at times one wouldn't believe just how much went into trying to keep the businesses going and look after the staff. Of course. And, uh, there, were, there were options for restaurateurs. Is either you could just cut the staff loose or you made a point of, of trying to see them through it and all the other different a- aspects and, of course, for the financial considerations. I sometimes became almost feral. I would get at my desk at 6 a.m. in the morning and suddenly I'd realize it was 6 p.m. and, yeah. and I'd maybe not even had a shower. It was, um, But I, I'm always interested by how much we adapt to yeah. situations. And it was it, never more so, so true. I, I think our capacity has been seen over the years as that... Um, I was giving a lecture not long ago, and and the question point, people were saying, um, they were talking about Brexit and how cataclysmic it was, and I was a massive opponent of Brexit. But I said, you know, we'll get used to it. Um, Mm -hmm. I said, for instance, the human condition is that if there was suddenly a bomb blast not that far away from our room and the windows shook, etc., everybody here 
would go running, there would probably be injuries, there would be a certain amount of hysteria, etc., and quite understandably. But if this was happening 75 years ago in the Second World War, yeah. I would look out the window and probably everybody would sit there and I'd say, hmm, that was close. And we'd carry on because we, we adapt. And I think we did adapt to lockdown, but I think now people are starting to run out of uh, a sense of novelty yeah. or enjoyment. And I think one of the things I've learned so much about lockdown is that contrast is a really important part of our life. For sure. And I still having Zoom calls with bankers or you know other, uh, other uh, people who are yearning actually to come back to work at least one or two days yeah. a week. And of course, I'm yearning for them to do so. Of course. A lot of people have had time for contemplation, I suppose, because they've had little else to do. Have you had any great revelations or kind of huge realizations, either about yourself or about the way you used to work? I think, um, I think one of the big revelations for me is, um, is finding the value of good people and learning to trust and learning the true scope of their, their ability, which in the hurly-burly of trying to keep a, a business going, it's very easy to, to overlook. Yeah. Um, I had an exec team, um, which we became very intimate in, in its way because um, every morning six of us would convene and talk and perhaps open up ourselves much more than we ever had done before because we all have a bit of a carapace of yeah. we're resilient and, and so on. I also learned that it's, it became really quite easy to sort out the bad people from the good people and it really lockdown brought out the worst in many and I don't just mean commercially and I've had great landlords and terrible mm. landlords but just in terms of humanity and um, whilst we were doing things like cooking for the NHS etc the sheer altruism of people and that's what I enjoyed most and I think altruism is an incredibly important part of humanity and we don't see enough yeah absolutely and what about the the positives for, from a business angle has it made you realize that there were things actually that you didn't need to be doing or things you were doing slightly wrong perhaps yeah, no, I think it's um, it's often quoted as you never waste a good crisis. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things about how we how we work in this industry, and the restaurant business is probably one of the most conservative of businesses. It's a surprising number of employees. It's over three million in the country. You know, we're we're a massive force, and we hate change vehemently. We resist change in any, any way, shape, or form. So. It's very easy to avoid doing it. Within a pandemic, we stop and look at everything that we do. And it's something which Chris and I, over the years, right back to the early 80s with Caprice, would always say, well, this is how people normally do it. Can we do it in a different way? And so we've restructured. Um, we've looked at efficiencies. We've looked at uh, combining roles. We've um, looked at elevating people much higher than positions they were before. It's really, really, really has been positive. And I think we're a much leaner, stronger, efficient team, but without any detriment to the customer experience. Absolutely. 
And what about the government's intervention? How, how do you think they've handled this? Now we've got a little bit of hindsight from, from the start of things. I would say commendable in intention, maybe not so much in execution. And there have been very good things. I mean, a fundamental problem for me, which is indicative of the feeling generally about uh, hospitality, is that we had the problem with the job retention scheme. Yeah. So most people, when they're put on furlough, were on 80% of salary or up to 30,000. And a lot of people in this business, 30,000 is all they earn anyway, uh, or more than they earn. And the government decided that um, service charge should not be included in that calculation. Yeah. And this is a fundamental, fundamental issue. And a lot of people were living on 40% of what was fairly small salaries. And that I sympathise the government because that was a very quick calculation and, and a special committee had said, well, they don't always declare their tips. It was a complete misunderstanding. And there have been a few, a few issues like that. I think the furlough scheme um, was extraordinarily good. I think it could, in a way, have been tighter because I think a lot of people have abused it. Um, and perhaps some whistleblowers will reveal that. Yeah. And I think generally, I mean, right up to the current day, of course, the Eat Out to, to Help Out, I'm hearing from a lot of people a sense that, yes, this, is a, this is, gives us some sort of impetus. At the other end of it, um, and some would say, well, this is not the government, it's, it's the mayor's office. Um, but if ever you were to sit down and say, right, how can we dissuade people to come into the West End, particularly in the evenings and weekends? One of the best suggestions would be to increase the congestion charge yeah. amount and also the hours. I mean, it's one of the most ludicrous things. Now, allegedly, this is part of a deal between the mayor's office and, and government. I don't know what the truth is, but I do know that it's crippling a lot of people and the yeah. number of people who took talk to me and say I would come in to see you but I you know I don't want to get a I want to drive my car I don't want to yeah and if I cross the Marlborough Road or cross um, Park Lane then it's going to cost me an extra 15 pounds exactly. so just as 10 pounds off your meal or 20 pounds for two is is an incentive 15 pounds yeah extra is a disincentive as a kind of prominent figure in the restaurant industry, do you have much contact with, with the government or, or the mayor's office? Do you speak to them? I'm, I'm fortunate enough, not uh, with the mayor's office. I, I used to, with the government, I, I've been very lucky with contacts in the treasury, etc. And, and so much of what they've done has been commendable, yeah. really commendable. The one area which I'm sad they haven't in, interceded on is the uh, matter of rents. Mm. Because um, they issued a code of conduct which was, you know, like t telling Donald Trump to play nicely. Um, it, the, the, you know, the good people observed it, but they would have observed it anyway. But the bad people just just laughed at it. And, yeah. and we now have so many people who, who are in a terrible dilemma because they have massive uh, arrears on rent. Because a lot of people only got deferments rather than reductions. Um, they've got staff up on furlough, which is now attracting costs to them. So, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to be let go, which is very sad, and even more, and you know, and compounded by the fact that a lot of businesses will go as well. But what I was saying earlier on about the attitude to 
to hospitality, it's always the back of my mind that um, the foreign secretary refers to us as unskilled workers and has made it very difficult for us to replace people from the continent. And, you know, I'm thoroughly European and I think Britain is so much better country because of the arrival of, of immigrants. You know, where would we be without the Huguenots? I mean, they transformed the cultural life of Britain. Yeah, absolutely. And well, the, but they increased, I think the, the, the figure was that the London, I may be wrong, but I think London's population increased something like 8% when they yeah. came, 8 or 10%. Imagine that happening now and how reactive would we be. Of course. I want to go a bit back to your beginning, not quite as far back as that, okay. um, but back to your, <laughs> your, <laughs> your early days in, in the restaurant industry, because I actually read an interview where you said you were a very shy person growing up, I am which surprised a, me a lot. Yeah, and, and deep down I am shy, um, right. but I've learned not to be because I couldn't be in this business if I, if I wasn't. So um, I'm somebody who's quite quick to be by themselves. Um, I got chided by who's who for putting um, as one of my interests as solitude. Um, they said, you can't put that. I said, why not? That's and a pretty good interest. Yeah. <laughs> a, and it was reflective of how I felt. I was always shy, uh, particularly at school. I'm incredibly shy. I, I would blush if the name King was met, said in public or the word King was uh, said in public. I was absolutely not cut out for this business. I'm mm. not a hail fella, well-met, clubbable type necessarily but you know I'm a a quieter person the beauty of it though for any shy person in the restaurant business is there is a kind of a barrier Um, so I'm I'm not very good at a cocktail party but I can be good in a restaurant because I I can keep on the on the move um, which is quite important to me and so I, I, I will ebb and flow yeah. according to the nature of the evening. You can't be cornered by a bore. Well, you can't be cornered, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and very, you know, very few of our customers are bores, and sometimes they surprise me, and they're actually fa- they're fascinating. And, but I quite like the notion of, of being a free, a free agent. And when yeah. I first started, which, like a lot of people in this business, was because I went into it to supplement income and this was back in the king's road when i was a when i was um started as a merchant banker in 73 i worked two nights a week in a wine bar to supplement income just like my equivalent of being a a student working there and there's something quite lovely about it particularly for a shy person because there was a counter in between me and and the people and um so i didn't i didn't feel claustrophobic and it and it helped me grow my liking for them and um and also I liked after being in banking I liked the certain amount of anarchy uh, about it and reality and one of my favorite memories when I thought that I would actually rather like the profession is that it was my first lunch by myself down in downstairs in this wine bar the King's Road two beautiful models w- walked in from the, the nearby agency and asked for two glasses of wine. And I think at the time, two glasses of wine was something ridiculous, like 36p. And they handed over, one of them handed over a 20 pound note. And she saw my look on my face because my whole float was about 25 pounds. So I to, to change this 20 pound note. And she saw it, the look and said, oh, I'm so sorry. 
I never carry anything less. So I trudged away to the till and stopped and turned around and said, well, that's okay then. If the, you then won't want the change. <laughs> and you went, oh, oh, I thought, oh, I quite like this. I, I, can, I, can, be a little, I can be a little bit anarchic. Um, I'm a fairly traditional Englishman. I'm not from uh, aristocratic stock or anything like that. But, um, you know, I'm quite proper. But restaurateurs have afforded me more expression, perhaps. Right. You're playing a role as a Jeremy King well, that's professionally. True. That's, that's true. <laughs> but is it true at that time that you decided the future of your career based on the role of a dice? This is one of my favourite stories, but I, it almost sounds like an apocryphal origin story. No, it's not, it's not apocryphal. It was uh, when I was in the bank, there was a big book which came out at the time, um, and one of the many influential books on me. Um, another was Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, which is now getting a lot of credence now and is yeah. actually a, a Silicon Valley uh, Bible. Um, and the other one was The Dice Man. And The Dice Man was entirely about a man who, when faced with options in his life, decided to throw a dice to uh, determine what to do. And it really was a cult book. It's not a particularly good book, but it was, a, it, it was really popular. And so I used to throw the dice for all sorts of reasons, whether where we'd go to eat a meal, where we'd go for a drink, or what mm. I'd even drink. I, I became obsessive. I, I turned into my work. I was bored at the Merchant Bank, so I would determine who I was going to be that day. Yeah. And that could be anything from somebody who's lost their voice through to somebody who rather fancied the extremely ugly uh, department head, or I've, I, you know, I used to go in the bank as Long John Silver occasionally, and, and you know, did anyone notice? Said, no, they just didn't really <laughs> notice. That's that's what sort of drove me crazy, and um, but it got serious because it was, and I think I started to apply because I was always a bit of a gambler, and mm. I, I enjoyed gambling. I, I don't gamble now. I mean, other I gamble in different ways, but. I um, had a, left the bank and I was applying to go up to uh, Cambridge and I got the place in Cambridge and meanwhile I was working in, in the wine bar just to supplement income and I quite liked the combination of physicality um, as well as interaction and I was becoming less shy and when the matriculation papers came through I suppose deep down I was uncertain because I decided to throw the dice and the double d dice throw there was one throw, um, I can't remember whether it was a double six or a double one, um, which whilst most of the throws were, you go, you go to Cambridge, you go to Cambridge, you go to Cambridge, maybe change your course, you go to Cambridge but delay a year, you, and all, all sorts of options. But one was, if you get managership of this place within a month of your 21st birthday, which you had to be 21, you'll stay in this for life. And that's what came up, and wow. I got the managership of this this wine bar and stayed with it, and regretted it a great deal. You know, life's been good to me. I've enjoyed the restaurant business, but I was never vocational. My vocation was to do whatever I did really well. Yeah. Um, I'd like to have been a an architect. I think I was an architect monke in some ways, but. I also, I'm fairly honest with myself, um, 
and I knew I didn't have the absolute skill of an architect. When I when I know an awful lot of architects, and it was a family friend who got me interested. And when I see their sheer brilliance, not necessarily as draftsmen or, or or whatever, just the imagination. And one of my great friends is Amanda Levite, who was Future Systems and now has Amanda Levite as Associates. And when she sketches something and imagines something, I think, yep, I could never have done that. Mm. Um, I can contribute. And one of the beauties of the restaurant business is that it encompasses so many of my interests because I'm interested in architecture and history and music and art. And all these things become a part of the business. What were you going to study at Cambridge then? Was it architecture? It, was, it wasn't architecture. That was the city. I'd already decided I, I wasn't going to be good enough, and nor did I want to, to spend seven years. Um, it was, I mean, I was originally, I was keen to go to Oxford for the PPE, mm. which seemed to suit me. And it very much goes into, I felt I should do it. Um, so it was an economics. I mean, I'm very arithmetic. Um, so it was playing on that. But that was why a couple of those throws on the dice were about changing my course. Could I dare to do something completely different? Um, I never found out. Well, I think it's worked out okay. One, yeah. one of your first great, um, I suppose, the most famous restaurant you you owned at first was Le Caprice. Yes. Which was a big breakthrough. But you were still young men then when you um, took over that. When we opened, I was, um, I just turned 27. And uh, Chris and I had met. He was working at Langens Brasserie. I was at Joe Allen. And we'd resolved to do a restaurant together. And then he happened to be asked by uh, Joseph, Joseph Ategi, the, the, the fashion mogul, to open a restaurant. He said, if we can do it with Jeremy and the, the thing about it is Chris was properly trained in the restaurant business and I I was autodidact so and the way it worked is that I didn't know how to set up a restaurant I'd wo- I started working in them but when somebody showed me how a restaurant should be set up then I would challenge it so I would say why do we have to do it like that why don't we change this and 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 Caprice was very, very important, I think, in the restaurant world. There's a lot of things which are so much part of the regular restaurant scene, the service and all these things, which actually emanated out of Caprice mm. because we, I refused to do things the way everybody else did it. But I couldn't have done it without Chris because uh, he, he had the formality of it. What were the things you were doing that other people weren't? Well, I mean, very simple things, which would, you know, people would furrow their brow out at the moment. But for instance, we had an inordinately strong American following. They understood the Caprice much better than London did initially, because it was really quite unusual at the time. Nobody had a decor like that. Um, So the Americans would come, and this is just, you know, a, a micro element, as they would order, we'd take an order for dessert and coffee. And of course, the British way to do it is you had your dessert, you finished it, then the coffee came. Um, but if you did that with an American, they'd say, where's my, where's my coffee, where's my coffee, um, as soon as the dessert would arrive. Because they were expecting it before the dessert. Yeah. And so we'd try and bring it quicker, and the Americans feel that they're being hurried, and, and the... Uh, the English would feel that they were being hired and the Americans would still say it's too slow. So I said, why don't we just ask? 
and everybody shied away from that because you don't you didn't do that in restaurants. You meant to just intuit. You ju- well, like it's that. just a formality because yeah. actually the restaurant scene is very much like the old British class system. There's the very high class restaurants, the Michelin stars, hotel restaurants, etc., which are very proper. And nobody would try and emulate them. Then there was the middle class restaurants, which was kind of caprice at the time, and then there was the the cheaper ones. So you know, when I'd go to a high-class restaurant and I'd be blown away by the fact that once they ordered, uh, took our order, then they knew everything about where the food should go, where the cutlery should go, etc. Whereas middle-class restaurants, you took the order, somebody came with the cutlery and say, who's having the soup? And yeah. then you bring the food, who's having the chicken, etc. It just happened. And the head waiter explained to me, well, you take a particular position on a table and you number that and then you number around the table and then you mark it up for the host and may, you know, particularly in those, those days, females and so on. And that's how it works. And I said, right, we'll do it. Oh, no. No, you don't do that in a restaurant like this. And I think if anybody says to me, you don't do that, um, right. that's what then spurs me on to change. Yeah. So... Um, I think um, is a myriad of things like that which which changed it. I mean, the notion of having a starter or a main course of a particular dish was unheard of. We yeah. did a middle section, you know, the small Caesar salad or a large Caesar. Surely not. <laughs> you either have starters or main courses. Yeah. Don't, don't ne'er the twain should mix, and uh, it seems ridiculous now. Of course, but 40 years ago, that was the norm. Yeah. It became uh, one of London's first true power restaurants. Is that fair to say? I think it is fair to say, yes. And it had, um, for really what's quite a small restaurant, it had an inordinately strong following. Why um, was that? What did people love so much about it? I think it felt modern. Um, both Chris and I had good contacts. It was a very, very hard start. And in fact, Joseph pulled, pulled out of the project and we really struggled for a long time but there's one thing which is really important in restaurateuring is proprietorial presence I would say that the the easy way to be a restaurateur is the hard way and that means being in the restaurant Mm. and so it made such a difference and there were turning points there was moments when um, I remember I think it was Chris picked up the phone and it was um Marie Helvin, who was with David Bailey at the, t- uh, the time, saying, listen, we're coming along with Mick and Jerry, Mick Jagger, Jerry Hall, um, Brian Ferry, and so on and so forth. We'd like a table for 10. We'll be busy. And Chris said, oh, you know what, <clears throat> this is what's happening. I said, we'll be busy. And so he started phoning people around and saying, get in here, get in. But I'm already in my pajamas. doesn't matter. Get in here. And we papered the restaurant so that it felt busy. Yeah. And the few bona fide uh, guests that we did have, of course, were blown away by this table and talked about it. Yeah. And in those days, it wasn't social media. I mean, it's word of mouth. And my feeling about social media, you know, because of course we come the opening of Zadell, we changed our stance on, on social media. If we're doing it properly to suit us, is it is a electronic version of word of mouth, um, rather than trying to sell, etc. It's it's people communicating, and um, and it's slowly built up. But I think behind it was the fact that Chris and I. Were, for many years saw every customer between us uh, coming through the door and I think you know we all 
like to be loved in some way. We all want to be wanted. Of course. I remember reading in, it may have been Nick Coleridge's memoirs, where he writes about the, the kind of pecking order of tables yes. at Look Caprice. And he kind of had a photographic memory of who's had whose tables. Yes. Was it, did you have to know all of those intuitively if someone walked in? Yes. I mean, the, the thing about good tables in restaurants is um, it's a fascinating psychology because what happens is more often than not, and certainly with us, the, what's conceived to be the best table by all the customers has become that because for us it's the most protected table. So at Caprice, it was a corner table by the window. Mm. Now, people could look through, but it meant <clears throat> it's the same with Woolsey or other restaurants, is that you would know that if somebody wasn't, who wasn't sitting in that particular area entered that corridor, so to speak, that, then they might interfere with the high-profile person. Yeah. So you needed to protect them. And, of course, then people would observe that that's the table we'd put people in and try to be there for different reasons. I think it was Joe Allen said to me something which I, I gather might have even come from uh, one of the Rothschilds talking to his butler in Paris having a very tricky table plan mm. for a dinner. And, and he said, you know what, don't worry about it. Those who care don't count. Those who count don't care. Yeah. I'm not sure it's absolutely true, but it's <laughs> uh, the... It, it was it was all, always interesting, cool. and so we and of course in those days we, you know, <clears throat> we kept records, but we didn't have any of the electronic yeah. uh, help that everybody does now. So I, when I see a restaurant not bothering to take notes on its customers or you know what their preferences are and what they do, who they are, I think it's criminal, and and it's uh, I'm afraid it's it's that danger in restaurants is that particularly as you get very busy. As a restaurateur, it's very easy to become arrogant and complacent yeah. and start to think you're doing people a favour. Absolutely. Um, which is not the case. There's a few places I can think of, sadly, that have fallen for that. Well, so what's in downstairs in the Woolsey then? What are the, what are the most prized areas, do you think? What, what have become people's favourites? Well, I think, um, whilst I don't want to promote this, the... <laughs> <clears throat> what is generally thought of is that within the horseshoe. Yeah. But having said that, I could list 10 very, very high-profile people who insist on sitting anywhere but the horseshoe. Right. Um, so, and that might be up, up above, but there's no doubt. But that really comes down to the fact that a lot of very high-profile people have been there, but it goes back to the protection thing because you can look after them better and keep them from being from being um, interfered with by other, other customers. Absolutely. Because, you know, to, for us, it's a, it's a failure if somebody's asked for an autograph. Yeah. Who have you met who has subverted your expectation of them? A public figure who you've had one thought of in your head and then when you've met them, they've been the opposite, perhaps. You may not be able to say names, but does it happen a lot that, that people are very different? Yeah, it, it does. Um, and a lot of people have surprised me. And it's the people who are what uh, you know, we would call beyond on sapo, and comfortable in their own skin. And <clears throat> they're the truly great people. And um, there's people who've never failed to, surp to surprise me. And, um, and bearing in mind um, 
the publication that this is for, um, and he'd probably be embarrassed if I said it. I think one one of the great people has always been Paul Smith. Yeah, because he cares about everybody, the staff and so on. And it's funny with um, with my kids, they they would say. How do you really know if somebody's right for you for a relationship? I said, take go to, with them to a restaurant because yeah. it actually brings out either the the best or the worst behaviour. Absolutely, <laughs> that's a good tip. Yeah. To go back to Luca Priest for a second, obviously during lockdown we heard that that was now not opening its doors again, or if it was, it was going to be a slightly different set of doors, so to speak. How did that news make you feel? Was it like I don't know, hearing that? An old, I don't know, an old friend had gone off the rails or something. Yeah, the strange thing about it, I, I was, I had mixed feelings a, about it. I was looking forward to the 40th anniversary, which was next next year. My, my, I was sad for the people who were there because it happened very suddenly. And Jesus, who joined us back in 81, was still there. And there's the reason it was it was doing well. I kind of understood it. Because it was, I think it was struggling to keep its its place in the market. And and let's face it, 40 years is an incredibly long time. And so rationally, um, moving it somewhere else probably made sense. It's not something I, I, I would have necessarily done. And for, I like rejuvenating places. And although we've created places from scratch a lot in the early days, of course, Caprice, Ivy, Sheikers were all... Um, rejuvenations. Yeah. So I, I was a bit sad, but I am actually strangely quite good at moving on. Yeah. Um, a lot of people become wistful and re- want to return to the, to their their stomping ground, in whatever format it might be. I quite like I quite like moving on. Yeah. And Chris actually um, said we were talking about I think. It must have been about 2006, and we're going to do a 21st uh, anniversary of, of uh, the Caprice. And Chris said, do you regret we sold it? I said, no. I loved it. I'd done it. And more to the point, we probably would never have done the Woolsey if we hadn't yeah. sold it. So um, we move on. I wonder how a restaurant begins. What's the initial spark that often kicks off the process? For me, it's always the room. Right. You can have plans. Um, you think to yourself, okay, I want to be in this area. I want 8,000 square foot and this, that and the other. And I'm, I'm thinking about a steak restaurant or whatever mm. it might be. But for me, it, it's walking in the room and you know it. It's, it's no different. People... For instance, when they walk into their a new apartment or a house that they're viewing, they kind of know in, <clears throat> in the front hall whether they're going to buy the house or not. Yeah. I don't know if, you, if you've ever done it or whether you know you're going to rent it. You know, and then the rest of it becomes confirmation. And that, for me, is the, is the thing. The room speaks to me. And I think where a lot of restaurants go wrong and why the casual dining sector has gone wrong is that concepts get imposed on buildings. So... I mean, a good example was when we, when we bought Sheikis, um, our agent, uh, David Coffer, was out, was out there looking for the eight to 10,000 square foot 
restaurant and and more and one day I phoned him up and I said we, we fa- don't worry you can stand down on the search we found the restaurant I said oh really where is that because he'd shown me two three restaurants which fitted my spec entirely and I said no and I said chic is so he said chic is your brief 8,000 to 10,000 one floor one big room and more towards Mayfair. I said, yep. He said, Cheek is two floors, five rooms, three and a half thousand square foot. And as he said, uh, and I, I'm purely quoting, he said, you're a fucking idiot. And um, so I said, he said, why would you do that? I said, because we like it. Yeah. It felt good. It really felt good. And that's what you have to do. And then, you know, it's really interesting when we were competing for what's now Colbert, the old Oriole site. And originally we'd been given the, the nod by Cadogan, but they suddenly realized they had the hottest site for a long time. I think there was 85 people applied for it. And, you know, it's all the people you can imagine and uh, <clears throat> thinking they would get it and offering more money than us. And they actually, and Cadogan had given a brief and I went from, for the interview and I hadn't taken masses of drawings and everything. I said, can I be a bit cheeky and say, your brief reads as a description of the Woolsey. And they went, yeah, that's what we want. I said, well, wouldn't it make sense for us to do it? And they said, yeah, but you're not offering as much money. I said, I know, but we'll deliver more, I promise you. Um, they said, okay. So that site was going to be Woolsey, Woolsey Light. Yeah. But I went... Having got it, went and stood there, and it was a concrete shell. I said, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is like Imperial West End deigning to open a restaurant. You know, I'm not a great fan of chains at the best of times. Uh, I said, well, this needs a local restaurant, as if it's been here for 100 years. Mm. It's, uh, the, it needs something else, something that Sloan Square is proud of. And to Cadogan's credit, when I went to them and said, can I change it? And they went... Okay, um, and it went from there, and I'm so glad. Yeah, <clears throat> that was the case. So that's really the process. Of some of the restaurants have <clears throat> have stories. Um, so Fishers has got a, is a refugees from Vienna. Mm-hmm. Colbert has a story. If you look at if you look at the room, you think it's just three rooms and it's just a restaurant. Each room is absolutely different to the other, but they come together. They have different paneling, have different lighting, different floors because it's as if the original owner who started with the bar had bought up the shops next door and, and did a bit through. of a knock through and got a deal on some yeah. some tiles which were close enough and so on and then it got a bit more luxurious as, as he got more affluent mm-hmm. and each room has a different um, reflects a different period in life so the, yeah. the big corner room is actually all about Paris and the war which he was which he was missing and the smaller room at the, at the far end of what we call the new room is all about French cinema of the 50s yeah. and so there's you know I could talk for an hour about that restaurant everything is make-believe though of course it sounds like you're a frustrated novelist really when you talk yeah. about these things in some ways I, I do love I do love a story yeah um and the big browsers don't have the full story. They, they just carry their own history and their own references. Um, but places like Soutine, Fishers, 
um, Colbert have very much have a story. And how many drafts do those stories go through, or are they kind of do they arrive with you in a dream or something? Yeah, they, they, it, it suddenly comes, and then I sit and write it, and yeah. then I might em- embellish it more. And do you p- actually picture these people in your head? Do you know what they're? Oh yeah. What they dress in, what their hair looks Absolutely. like. Absolutely, and I, I even, um, you know, I I know what the fishes look like. Um, <laughs> Wow. But actually what they look like is purely a photograph I bought in Vienna flea market. But they've become the fishes. I've got photographs of their children and their friends. And, and it, it, it spills over. I mean, my wife was um, helping me buy paintings, etc. And, and one day she, she's, I'd asked, I said, I need a big painting uh, portrait uh, for the end of the room. And she said, I found this one here in Czechoslovakia as a bit dodgy these source and I said would you like it and I said it's, it's great it's perfect who do we know who it is she said yeah some guy called Richard Tauber I said you're kidding me because Richard Tauber was the most famous tenor of the early wow. 20th century I mean came out of Vienna and moved to London at the same time as the Fishers moved to London um, because he was getting away from the programs, etc. Yeah. And he was and lived in Northwest London. He would have known the Fishers. So wow. So uh, and she said, well, it's a risk because we could send the money and never see it. And I said, no, it's too good, too okay. good. So uh, so if you, if you ever go to Fishers, you'll see the yeah. man in the trilby. That's eerie. Yeah. That's incredible. And, and so and it, it, it's difficult to know where fact and fiction uh, end, um, but, which makes it fun. Of course. Do you think you have a, a better barometer of a kind of atmosphere of a room, even if it's an empty shell, a concrete block like a Colbert, or even a restaurant room when it's in, uh, at full capacity? Do you think you can tell better than most the, the, the mood of the place? I, I think we do it. I mean, uh, we do it naturally. Uh, in all our different prof- professions. Um, the, there's a writer called um, Brooks, this is Robert Brooks, who wrote a book called The Social Animal, and who says that when we assess something, and it might be a potential partner, a, a person, or it might be danger, or whether we like, like a building, consciously, we are sort of plodding, looking at things, how oh, I quite like that and so on. But our brain is working at millions of times faster. Mm. And that gives us intuition. And nobody really understands intuition or instinct. But it's there. It's our, bra- our brains just taking it in much quicker than we can deal with it. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't synthesize that. And so what ends up happening is you get a situation. I mean, he, I heard him talk once and he was... He was explaining that there are, there have been in the American army people who fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq, etc. And they put these specialists at the end of a street because there's always a fear of an IED, an, an improvised explosive device. And they'd say, is there an IED in the street? And the guy, the really good one guy would get it. 95% wow. right and they'd say how do you know that he said I don't know it said, well, why do you say yes or no so well if I get a cold feeling in my chest my I say yes but it's the brain which has, has taken all that information and it's like us getting butterflies in our stomach yeah. or, or whatever it might be it's we know so much more that's going on so I'm fortunate because I've done it thousands and thousands of time I can walk into a room and know 
whether it's going well or not. Mm. Uh, not because nobody's got their hand up asking for something or, or whatever. It's just it's just a feeling. Yeah. And, and, and all of us in our different professions uh, develop that sort of muscle um, in Amazing. different ways. And what happens if, God forbid, you walk into the Woolsey and it does feel dead? It feels like it's... Does that ever happen? If, if I, I've walked in and felt, felt the tension from right. it, and it, it can be different things. I mean, it, the other things which sometimes happens, which I, it took me a long time to realise my instinct as I'd walk into a room and it would feel wrong. But I learned also to turn to the receptionist and say, is it a full moon tonight? <laughs> and wow. it's extraordinary during full moons people behave so badly. Hence the word lunatics. Yeah. And people get very agitated, they get uh, discombobulated, they get aggress- aggressive. They get, it's, it's amazing the effect a full moon has, has on a room of people. And it, for me, I think you know, these things, you just have to, you have to understand them and work yeah. with them. And then, and then we become more sympathetic to the, to the people we're looking after. Because in, in hospitality, if you don't have care and compassion and a, a desire for understanding of those people yeah. then you shouldn't be in the business so never open a restaurant on a full moon always look at the lunar calendar well, before you well it's, it's, although that may not matter that may not matter of course there's a lot of people who will who will look at any number of other signs and I'm yeah. never sure I mean I'm not a great person for astrology but I do know that a full moon indisputably and the other one which is always fascinating which um, the staff have learnt to trust me on is mercury in retrograde yes i it's it's it you know empirically there's just so many mercury in retrograde incidents i could i could talk for ages about it i yeah. don't understand it and i you know i think half the astrologists are charlatans but uh shelly von strunkel um once taught me quite a lot because i was asking her questions and particularly about mercury in retrograde she explained it and it made so much sense <laughs> and so I often alert. I say, right, it's Mercury in retrograde because things will go wrong. The computers yeah. will go down. Miscommunications. People, people fighting with each other electronically because, you know, the phone going off. It, it's amazing. It's, wow. Uh, yeah. It feels like 2020 has been permanently. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so what about then the restaurant names? Once you've got the site, how important is a name to a restaurant? Is it a bit like? band names where if the band is good enough actually the name doesn't matter yeah absolutely right um because i mean you say about bands i mean the beatles beatles terrible has a pun. stupid name yeah <laughs> a terrible pun. the rolling stones also a bit of a joke, I mean, yeah i mean really <laughs> and you know if you look at our restaurants the ivy i mean if you played word association you say poison. say poison never thought there about that the same um, you said it yeah but if the restaurant's good enough it transcends the name it re- really does i mean i still I don't like the, you know, Brasserie Zadell could have been the Sherwood Street Brasserie. I think that's really boring. And, mm. uh, but it's, it's, it's amazing that how quickly we forget. I mean, I, I always giggle when Charles Finch opened um, uh, Chuck's. Chuck's, yeah. I mean, who would name a restaurant over an act of vomiting? I think that's a great name, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, um, and it, it's, yeah. it is a great, I love it. I love the name. <laughs> but it's illogical to, to call it that way. It's so so we talk about intuition. Have there been times when you've actively had a gut feeling but then gone against it? And has it has yeah. it paid off badly? Yeah. What have been the flops then? 
The flops were, I suppose our, our main flop really was a restaurant we did in, in Lower Regent Street called St Alban. Mm. And it had certain problems because we wanted to do something different. I think if we'd opened that restaurant like we'd normally did and did panelling, paintings, fish cakes and so on and so forth, it would have done fine. But we tried to do something new and in many ways did the best food we ever had there. But we were trying to do something very modern, a journey through Europe. We worked with Michael Craig Martin and Damien Hurst on the interiors. But... It just didn't gel. And in some ways, it was because we did it a bit too much as a committee. We were trying to be too egalitarian. Mm. Um, and I, I put a lot of store in, the, in that old saying, which um, it says, a camel is actually a horse mm. designed by a committee. And that's the thing. It does kind of what it needs to do, and it gets far further than a horse, and it's much cheaper to run than a horse, but ultimately you wanted a horse. <laughs> and so I, I'm a great avoider of that. One of my life mottos is, um, is about things we do because we feel we should and things we do because we feel we want to. And what I teach the staff is that Everything, pretty much everything I regret in my life has been something I did because I felt I should. And I've had things which have gone wrong, which I've wanted to do, but I never regret them. No. And I think, you know, regret is a, is a big part of, of, our, of our life. So I find that incredibly important. And, and I counsel whether it's my children or their friends or my friends, um, and they're trying to make a decision. What do you want to do? Mm. But it's, which is often obscured because there's a greater salary, for instance, on a yeah. job decision or whatever. I said, just go for the one you really want to do. Because if you do car. it well, you will then earn a, be- a bigger salary. Yeah. It's easier said than done, though, because often you don't quite know what your gut's saying. No. It changes day to day. Well, absolutely. How yeah. can you put the finger on it? Well, it's very hard because sometimes there are musts yeah. Uh, or needs and you know you've got to earn a certain amount of money and so on and so forth but deep down I think we, we all know and uh, so for me it's, re- it's very important so St Alban it just didn't work and people were very kind because it happened to coincide uh, with the 2008 crash and so on and so forth and people say oh you know that's because of that and so on. I said no you, I think that you're very kind but that exacerbated the problem yeah but the problem's there it's just like the pandemic has exacerbated the problem of a lot of restaurants which should have been perhaps better of course and would have survived more easily um, but you know it, I learned from that we we move on Mm. Of course, the other, what was fun at the moment is that we tried and tried and tried to make Belanger work in Islington. And, uh, and after three and a half years last summer, decided we just can't go on. It's irresponsible. It's costing us money. It, it was busy, very busy at the weekend and then nothing through the week. We clearly hadn't got it right. And it defied sufficient analysis, really. And, and often you only get one shot with a restaurant. So we would decide we'd, we'd close it and sell it, and then the sale fell through. And I said to Zuliko, she's my MD, I said, you know what, maybe we could go back and have another go at it, because there's been such an outpouring of remorse and mm-hmm. lamentations about us closing it. And, and, and you know, I'd been saying to people listening to, where were you? 
You say you love it, but where were you? And two or three times over the course of the year, I, I said, well, you know, maybe, nope. Quite right, she was saying nope. And then just before the pandemic, we'd agreed a deal with somebody who was going to take it over. Um, and on the Friday the 13th, they agreed at 10.30 in the morning and at 6 p.m. they reneged on, on, on the agreement. And then, I don't know, two months into the pandemic, or maybe three months, Zuleika said, actually, you know what? That idea of yours of reopening Belanger, maybe that would work now. Yeah. And it's, it's been fantastic, the, the response. Thousands of people answering questionnaires and so on. It almost looks like, if I was being cynical, a publicity stunt to close it to make people <laughs> realize what they missed you know, it, and it, open it back. I'm, I'm hoping it continues to look like a publicity okay, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and, and that it works. So yeah, we you know we said we'll we'll try it until Christmas, and if it if it really works, then we'll carry on. So uh, okay, and uh, so it'd be interesting. It would be different. We had to change it, and people don't like change, as I said before. Of course. So if we, if we work backwards, I was thinking over the last 40 years, if we work backwards, we've had this, this pandemic, the 2008 crisis, Brexit in between those, there's been other financial crashes and crashes, and yet you're still here, still working in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Do you think you're particularly calm in a crisis or, or just better equipped than others to uh, deal with adversity? I'm not sure I'm better equipped. I think I am quite calm in a crisis. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people who's pulse almost goes down when there's something and and wow. and I quite often see the amusing uh, amusing side of it I'm absolutely fine as long as I can see a benefit for the from the problem and what I mean by that is it's a defense mechanism and when I had a really really good example which is a tiny example, is I was sitting in my car, I drive a very old car, which I have for 35 years, and I don't, you know, I, I love that car, I don't want to change it, and I was sitting at a junction years ago, and I watched a Range Rover heading t- towards me, turning, and then not turning, and, and I thought, oh my God, it's going to hit me. And indeed it did. <clears throat> and it, it's pinned me inside, it would damage the car really badly, but my brain said, you know what, it needed some work, it needed a respray. Even at the uh, moment you were... In that moment. Um, And then luckily, luckily I'd also made a vow that I would never swear. And it's something which, um, although I put that vow on furlough during during the pandemic (laughs) for a while, it's, it's back on. So basically for... Uh, 30 years I, I very 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 rarely swear if wow. anybody hears me swear I can quote you know I, I quoted uh, David Coffer earlier on if anybody hears me swear amongst the staff they, they, they're entitled to five pounds okay. and if it's a room of a hundred they're five hundred pounds and I was so angry and I remember I had to crawl out of the other side of the car with a bad back and this woman was saying oh I'm so sorry as a young woman I'm so sorry and um, I just know what happened the brakes seemed to fail I said it's right it's right so it's because because I knew that I was so angry it's fine let's just swap details and she gave me her name and I recognized it as being a customer uh, who'd actually been helping me um, on a planning issue um, before and I thought, thank God for that, because if I'd turned around and started 
venting my, my frustration. And I do find that it's one of the most useful things because if we don't swear and we have to articulate our anger, yeah. it tends to dissipate much quicker. It's the same as you know, if somebody's threatening you and shouting at you, the, what you must do is always bring it down. Talk quietly. Yeah. Um, so rather exacerbate. So um, that I'm must sure. be useful on a on a restaurant floor as well. It, it is on it is on a restaurant floor um, because people lash out. I mean, it's something I say to the staff is that you don't take offence when people are really rude to you because unfortunately, often they are making their issues your problem mm. and. So just try and understand it. They're maybe unhappy at home or work or whatever it, whatever it is. Don't take it personally. And it's through doing that. And often I'll say, to, if somebody is misbehaving and being rude to the staff, I said, no, we're not doing this anymore. Because the whole point about going to a restaurant is that it, you're entering into a contract with, with the restaurateur to try and have a good time. The restaurant can't give people a good time unless they want it. But so often people go out intent on mm. on venting their anger. It's such a shame. So the customer isn't always right. Uh, the customer's right until they prove themselves wrong. <laughs> and, and where do you? How often do you have to find yourself saying, "Listen, you've got to go." Very rarely. Very, very rarely. rarely now. And I think that's partly because of proprietorial presence. Yeah. Um, and I. I must admit, I, because I'm close enough to them, I, I always side with the staff. Um, unless I, because there's enough people who they trust me enough that I will, I will look after them. Of course. Um, and people, you know, it's an interesting thing in a restaurant because I've witnessed so often um, people being turned away and they'll then complain to me and say, um, your staff were so rude to me and I'll have been standing there when, when they did it they didn't realise I said were they actually rude to you or did they tell you something you didn't want to hear yeah. I said because of that and whenever anybody says your staff were rude to me I, I assume it's they were frustrated because they didn't get their own way and uh, so I, that's why I side with the staff there must be a tension knowing people and knowing your customers when they come in and expect to get a table and there genuinely isn't one. Do you ever have to kind of let friends down in that way? Oh, yes. I mean, all the time. And, of course, it's a big differentiator uh, as to uh, how that's accepted. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll do anything, of course, to, to look after mm. our regular customers. We've, we've built it upon it. You know. But people are very funny. I remember back days of the Ivy, somebody had phoned up three weeks' notice and had been told no and they, they asked to speak to me and they said this is ridiculous anybody phoning up three weeks in advance should be automatically given a table I said well what if 500 people phone up where am I going to get those 500 tables you know I got 33 of them and it, and it gets out of hand and it, and it makes the restaurant very different and I remember that shortly before we uh, finished at the Ivy I was listening to a conversation in the reservations room and uh, it was the normal thing can I have a table for four at nine o'clock on Saturday no how about Friday no how about the following Saturday no how about the Saturday? and the inevitable question comes which is when is your first table for four at nine o'clock on a Friday or Saturday but I didn't hear the answer so I went back I remember it so well this was in um, January 
of uh, 2000. And, and the, I said, what, what's the answer to the first available table? And they said, um, late April. I thought, huh. surprised. I thought, that's quite soon, really. Um, but it might be late. He said, no, no, April next year. Wow. And people, people were booking 50 months in advance. I said, stop it straight away. Because the, the people who arrive, who buy a ticket, are coming for the wrong reason. We're more spontaneous. Yes, you, you know you can do it. There's a certain amount of tables we let out on that basis, but then we close it, close it down, because everybody comes and sits there, and uh, because and, and the reason they're booking is because they've seen a photograph of somebody famous coming out of the front door, and they can, they're going to expect to see them, and they they don't do anything for it because. Is a, a phrase I used during the pandemic um, to explain things is, is the conviviality of community. It's not a theatre show going to a restaurant. It's meant to be convivial. Mm. And the restaurants where people just sit and take photographs or show each other YouTube or do like that, they, you know, I hate that sort of environment. Yeah. That may answer my next question, which is what are your, your bete noirs of the current restaurant industry yeah for, for, photography um youtube do people uh, really watch youtube and well youtube or showing each other clips and yeah. so on i mean instagram instagrams and so on and so forth i like a restaurant perhaps not so much what my bet noirs are that there, there are plenty of them loud people i can't bear when people are loud because they ruin the whole room one loud person can destroy a room um i want to go to a restaurant where I feel that I walk through the door as almost as I'm lifted off my feet by the people who greet me and that I'm passed from one to another and I join a table, I look around the room as I'm walking to it and I see people I might know or people who are very well known or people who shouldn't be together and there's a, there's a buzz and then I sit down at a table with friends and nobody's got their phone out and, every, and there's this engaged mm. conversation which is... And you join in it and you think very quickly, oh, this is, this is why we're doing this. Whereas a lot of people go out and sit around in desultory circles, you know, men with a, and, and nothing to say to each other. And that you, the meal proceeds, the conversation gets better, you laugh, it's not just anecdotes, it's questions and ex explorations. And then at some point somebody stops and looks down at the food they're eating and they say, you know what, this is really rather good. And then, then somebody else says, and fairly priced as well. And then you go back to, back to it. Because I, I yeah. don't like going to restaurants which are temples. Um, of course. Where all you hear is the clink of yeah. cutlery and glasses and people whispering, what's yours like? You know, I, I, the restaurant is a catalyst for whatever people want. And that's why we like doing grand cafes and restaurants is because you go there for all sorts of different reasons you might go with your partner or with your family or for a reunion an old school friend or an interview uh, you might be going to seduce you might mm. be going to divorce a lot of people do all these things in in restaurants and it's a, a great restaurant allows you to do whatever you want in it and you can dress as you like and it, it that's what makes makes a restaurant really special and that there are, yes, there are affluent people, but there are non-affluent people. A lot of the most interesting people who go to restaurants are, are actually the least affluent because they bring the life and the buzz and the, and, and the fun. Yeah. And what about the, 
the food trends or the conventions of, of modern dining that, that maybe you don't like so much? Is there anything that really gets on your nerves? Actually, funny enough, the thing which really gets on my nerves, I mean, I do sometimes wonder about all the f different fusions and, and yeah. which are, just seem to be people not understanding food but trying to look for for innovation um, it's people it's I can't bear going to restaurants where there's drizzles and bunoises and chop this and mm. tweezer fed little herbs etc but actually the fundamental the fundamental chicken or whatever it might be is not actually very very good and it becomes all for show and the very simple rules in a restaurant is when you put food on a plate as a dish you are basically saying subliminally eat this in these this proportion so you get quite a lot of potato because it's fairly bland and you only get a small amount of wasabi and it works through the meat and you know you kind of know how to combine them but what's happened so much now is that people put food on the plate those ingredients which in themselves are probably good but they put them in proportions to look good right as yeah. opposed to taste good and that's what that's what drives me crazy i've never considered that but it's often the case and yeah. so you'll get because wasabi is really nice and green you'll get too much of yeah. it and uh, it should be the whole uh, properly constructed dish mm. and let's face it we none of us really need more than three things on a on, on a plate unless okay. it's a a mixed seafood or something like yeah, that. Yeah, of course. So before you go, I want to ask you our quickfire questions, which we spoke briefly about. Oh, uh, yes, yes, which I will probably fail at terribly. <laughs> well, that might be just as exciting. But my first question is quite interesting because it's what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And I wonder what would have happened had that roll of the dice gone differently all those years ago. I... I really don't know. I'd like there's. I've looked at a lot of things. In fact, when we sold the when we sold the old restaurants, I thought I was going to discover what I really wanted to, wanted to do. I still don't know. Um, I still go. I go back to Peter Crouch, who said, said, "What would you have been if you weren't a footballer, a virgin?" <laughs> I, I'm sure there's something in me which would be the equivalent. So there's still time for a, a, another career. Do you think I as think a novelist? So. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I think it was Andre Gide who said that every man, and of course this is sexist times, should have three careers. Right. So I've. I, I sort of think I've had three careers because I went out of the hospitality and came back in, and I had the merchant banking. Yeah. But I'd love to do something else. Maybe okay. write. And and before I actually go on to the next one, I wanted to ask you about your next projects. You've reminded me because what has happened. I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about them, but there was one in Notting Hill that was coming yep. up, I know. There was Manzies in, in Soho. Manzies, uh, which, yeah. There was even a, a rumbling of a New York project. Yeah, and we, we were advanced talks with a, a really we've a really good site in New York because we've been looking for a Woolsey site there Yeah. for, I'd say, probably the best part of 14 or 15 years and finally thought we found one. Um, but, of course, it's, everything's now full of uncertainty. Manzi's is half completed and just waiting really to, to work out exactly what's going ahead before I push the button um, to spend the rest of the money. Um, Notting Hill has to be on hold because mm. um, uh, we haven't got the reserves 
to do it. So I need I need to generate a bit of money before that happens. Okay. So there's still hope. There's oh yeah. yeah. I mean, Manz is is. Um, I don't know if you notice when you walk through here, all the yachts, etc. Yeah. Out there, they're all they're all going to Manz. Okay. It's uh, it's wow. very advanced. It okay. Wouldn't, yeah. It won't take too much. To <laughs> and is there a backstory there? Is there a, a, a no, no, not it's uh, it, it's more in more about um, the genre of food of okay. fish restaurant. I can yeah. picture it now. Yeah. No, it's it's very you know the the paneling. Yeah. Like a the Reeves murals and frescoes, the yes, exactly, and uh, mermaids, mermen, okay, mer, mer, wow, mer binary. Uh, <laughs> what, what's uh, next? Back to the quick fire, then. I told you these are always more like snow <laughs> fire. What's your uh, worst habit, Jeremy? Um, perhaps being over optimistic. Okay, I don't think that's a bad one. No, it, it can prevent you from <laughs> confronting the truth too soon. Always believing something will, okay. will sort out. Are you a punctual person? I am just about a punctual person. Someone told me that all optimists are always late because they think it's they gonna, can always get the exact yeah. tube and the exact. No, it's a it's a fair it's a fair question. I beat myself up if I'm late, and yeah. yet I don't always leave enough time. Okay. <laughs> What's the most impressive thing you can cook? The interesting thing is sometimes I get help from the restaurants um, with ingredients and I, I'm a brilliant finisher when it comes to cooking mm. because all these years watching chefs finish uh, dishes, I'm, I'm actually um, have a good reputation for being able to put things together because one of the big problems about, about cooking is everybody thinks it has to be timed to finish exactly at the, yeah. the same moment. The truth is I do a really, really mean stew as well oh, wow. and, I, and I particularly derive uh, enjoyment from cooking a, my, a myriad of different types of, of stews. Okay. Um, yeah. And what are you most proud of in your career thus far? That it worked out uh, when I had no right necessarily or qualifications for it for it to work out and that I've made a lot of people happy. Absolutely. And then on the other side, what have been your biggest failures or regrets? Of not not being more bold. I mean I think in the rest in the restaurant side is is perhaps not being more ambitious. And my deep down, my biggest regret has been losing control to investors. I, I still have control, but have, um, I like being a independent, benign dictator. Okay, emphasis on benign, of course. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? Either singing or typing. Typing? Do you still do the kind of two finger? My father's your exact age and he does that as well. Yeah. It infuriates me to watch him. Yeah. Touch typing. <laughs> well, I'm sure that can be fixed very easily. What was the last piece of advice you gave to someone? I think the last piece of advice I gave was very much on the basis of um, seek what you want to do rather than what you feel you should. But the other thing which I advise a lot of people on is not to be scared of change, but particularly in this business. And I often quote the leopard 
Lampedusa's lep- leopard. And when Prince Tancredi, when being questioned by somebody who's resistant to change, he says, if things are to remain the same, everything has to change. Wow. And I think that's the best advice. Absolutely. What phrase would you like to banish from the earth? It's business, it's not personal. <laughs> okay, do people say that a lot to you? Wow. If they, as an excuse. Okay. Do you think all business is in some way personal? Yeah. Because there, there are people involved and the ramifications are, are people. I also have a particular abhorrence of the excuse I'm doing my best. Okay. Do your staff members sometimes say that? They've learnt not to. Okay. <laughs> Why don't you like that? Isn't that what we should all aim for? That was always the advice as a kid. As long I as you're doing your should. best. I think, I think we should all aim to, to do our best, but we should never use that as an excuse for failure. Okay. I was doing my best. Fine. And what does that mean? doesn't help anyone at that point. The phrase I like, which has become an, almost a motto um, in the office, it comes from... Samuel Beckett, who was quoted when he was watching a rehearsal for Waiting for Godot, and he said, ever tried, ever failed, try again, fail again, fail better. Absolutely. <laughs> Which book has influenced you the most? There's been lots of literary references so far. Is there one above all others? What book? Um, Unfortunately, I, I suppose I'd have to say The Dice Man because it had a major, yeah. major impact on my life. But it, it's, there are others which have moved me. I mean, I talked about uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, which was, which was not one which moved me as such. I, I remain very, very moved by Tender is the Night. Yeah. And, so. and that's got a great grand hotel with a grand yeah. room in it as well. And it's just a, a, evocative of period and a behaviour and also the sadness of madness. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I want to go back to the Dice Man quickly. Do you, do you prescribe that to anyone? No. If they, they're not sure? No. That's no. not a way to live your life. No, no in fact, uh, I always say to people, don't read this book. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. There was another book in the early noughties like that, Yes Man. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was then a film with Jim Carrey. Yeah. Where he said yes to everything. Yeah. That's a more extreme example, Yeah, isn't that's... It? Uh, Not good things to live No, I, I, I... <laughs> what, what's your personal motto then? We've had, we've had a few. Oh, right. Uh, I, if I'd known, I would have... You would have uh, saved one of the bank. I would have said, yes, I... You can reuse them, that's... Yeah, I think it probably then it's the no matter, try again. Yeah. Fail again, fail better. Absolutely. And finally, what is your idea of happiness, Jeremy? Mm, not worrying. Do you worry a lot? I worry that things are, are right. And it's... Um, I, do, I hate things being unresolved, so, uh, which make me worry. Absolutely. So I think, so my ha- I'm quite quick to become happy if I haven't got something hanging above me. Absolutely. Brilliant. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.